Episode 5 of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. One of the reasons I created this podcast is to provide a platform for first responders and their families to share their stories. We all have a story, and I'm a firm believer that sharing our stories creates resilience, and by giving it away, you can use your own journey as a means to help others. Research shows that this giving away can have a substantial impact on our psychological and physical health. Today's guest is Sarah Purcell. She is the very definition, in my opinion, of resilience and has openly been sharing her story for years. This episode may be difficult for some to hear. She discusses the murder of her husband, Brian Etheridge, in 2009, her journey to healing, and everything in between. When I first met Sarah, she was addressing a group of recruits getting ready to graduate from the academy. What struck me about her was the ability she had to tell her story in such a way that continues to honor her late husband and the raw emotion and the aftermath of his death, how it impacted her and her family. While numbers of felonious line of duty deaths are gradually trending down, one life is too many. The impact this has on a family, an agency, a community, and our nation is far reaching. Sarah gets granular and talks about the hard times, her struggles, and how she finds peace and resilience in giving back. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome to another episode of the Guns and Yoga podcast. Today's guest is Sarah Purcell. She's a law enforcement spouse, mother of four, nurse by trade, and an overall wonderful human being. To know Sarah, you are better off. She's an inspiration and demonstrates the epitome of resilience. When Sarah was just 26 years old, her husband, Brian Etheridge, a Sedgwick County Sheriff's deputy, was murdered in the line of duty on September 28, 2009, while responding to what he thought was a routine call. Sarah talks about the events of that day, discusses lessons learned, and the impact this has had on her and her family. Sarah is passionate about sharing her story and supporting other spouses and family members. She shares her story with each graduating recruit class in her community and their families prior to them hitting the street with the intention of encouraging communication with your spouse and to keep Brian's memory alive. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you being here. Um, Why don't we just start out by telling everyone, um, if you don't mind, a little bit about yourself and how you met Brian. Okay. Um, Brian and I met in high school, actually. We were working at the same um, high school job at a vet clinic down in Derby and uh, both had the intention of going to K-State and becoming veterinarians and um, were headed there in the fall. And so we started dating the spring of our senior year, right before graduation. And headed to K-State together um, with the intentions of um, becoming veterinarians, but (laughs) after taking um, some chemistry classes and other difficult uh, avenues there, we both decided that probably wasn't for us. Um, But we ended up staying at K-State and I decided to pursue a degree in nursing. I did my undergraduate studies at K-State, and Brian decided that he wanted to go into um, criminal justice, 
and the same thing. He did his undergrad at K-State, and then we both transferred here, moved back to Wichita, and I went to Newman University for nursing school, and he attended uh, Wichita State University for a criminal justice degree. So he went from wanting to be a vet to being a cop. That's yes. kind of interesting, <laughs> interesting, interesting job transition. <laughs> it is. He's an animal lover, and um, he was always, he would have made a great canine cop. Um, so, you know, there. it's funny that those two, it does seem like two very different career choices, career paths, but um, he had always had a passion for law enforcement, and I knew that. And um, that's always something that he had talked about kind of in the back of his mind that um, he really had an interest in or thought that he would he would be well at. Yeah. And even though they are different, I mean, really, when you think about it, they're both of those professions are about helping others, whether it be animals or people, but, but still shows that, that that was something that was important to him. Yes. So, so he decides to become a cop. You you're in nursing school. Um, and at some point you guys get married and, and start a family and, and just tell us a little bit about Ryan's um, early years as a in the academy and and once he hit the street. Okay, yeah, we ended up getting married. Um, we were both very adamant that we wanted to graduate from college first, and I wanted to take my nursing boards before our wedding. Um, so we did that. So we married when we were twenty three in the summer, and <clears throat> he had had the intentions of. Um, becoming either a deputy here in Sedgwick County or a Wichita police officer, applied to both um, the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Department and the Wichita Police Department. Didn't get in on his first try, but we were young and that wasn't uncommon. And I very much encouraged him to just keep trying. He obtained a job um, with the uh, Sedgwick County Detention Facility and worked there at night. Um, in the residential facility side where kids were maybe not in as much of a lockdown uh, scenario. They had a little bit more freedom, but still in detained in a detention facility. And that's where he worked while trying to pursue, you know, getting hired on with um, either Sedgwick County or Wichita PD. And he was contacted by the Cedric County Sheriff's Department. And I remember he was just so super excited um, when they said they were coming to do an in-home interview. And so he, this would have been in 2008. And then he started the Academy July of 2008, um, right after the 4th of July. I remember that it was the Monday after the 4th of July. And he went through the academy, you know, that six months, he graduated um, from the academy December of 2008. And I graduated from nursing school at the same time. And then he started his FTD training uh, early 2009. And forgive me if I'm wrong, I, I believe that that's, is it a full six months for the sheriff's department? It, Are you talking about for the field training portion yes. of it? Yeah, it's, it's, um, and I don't know what it was back then, but, but it's a pretty, that's close. It may not, not be quite six months, but it's, it's several months. Yeah. I can't exactly remember when, you know, the exact date was that he went out on his own, mm -hmm. um, in his patrol car, but I do, it was probably, you know, like 
early summer or late spring of 2008. so really, he hadn't been on the department that long at all. Right. So, and I think you, you've you talked about how pretty quickly he was on day shift. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So he uh, finished as the class president of his um, academy class and either finished first or second in, in grades. And they said that they were... and. Perhaps it was first because I remember they said that they would give the uh, first choice to the person with the highest highest grade coming out of the class uh, if they could. And we really wanted him to work on first shift because I was a nurse working nights at the time. And it was crucial that we both couldn't work at night. And there wasn't an option for me to go to day shift at the time. So we were very hopeful that he would get put on day shift, but thought that the chances were probably slim. And he did. And it was it was a great surprise to both of us. It it um, it made it so that we didn't have to have very much daycare for our daughter, uh, who was two at the time when he graduated. And we could you know, one of us was mostly home with her and I was able to keep working night shift. And I also you know, I, I did. I had a false sense of security that he was going to work in the county during the day. And it made me feel a little, a little safer, I guess. Sure. And it's not uncommon for most cops um, who are married to nurses or other kind of frontline workers to do exactly what you said, to avoid having to pay for daycare so that one parent is always with the child. So, um, and I can relate to that from a, from a personal standpoint is that my husband and I tried to try to do that at least the first couple of years um, when our daughters were little. So, so it looks like, or it sounds like that's what worked out for you guys is that you were able to both be with your daughter. Yes. Okay. So at the time of the incident, when, when Brian was killed, um, how old was your daughter? She was almost two and a half, uh, two years and five months old. She had just turned two in May and he was killed in September. So she was very young. Without much, you know, working knowledge of what was really going on, just understood that dad wasn't there, um, which was very difficult. Oh, I I bet. So can you walk us through what happened? And and before you do that, I just want to make sure everyone realizes I said it in the beginning, but you do something that's pretty amazing. Um, And I don't know how long exactly you've been doing this, but every time we have a graduating class in, in our community, um, you come out and you speak to the recruits and their families during that, that one particular night shortly before they graduate and you share your story, um, about what happened that day and just some things that happened as a result of that with you and your family and the impact it had, what, um, what inspired you or what motivates you to continue to do that? And why do you do that? Honestly, um, purely selfish reasons that it is very cathartic for me. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that it keeps Brian's memory alive and he did not die in vain. And it keeps him something a little bit more fresh in the minds of, you know, people that are starting this job young and just, you know, in the beginning of their career as he was, it keeps him more fresh in their mind from just a picture that's on the wall at the Academy. Because, I think they can probably relate with a lot of the things that he was going through and a lot of the excitement and, you know, just pride in starting the job. And we, I loved that about him. 
And I am so honored to have been his wife and to be able to tell his story and share with people the the good things that did come um, from such a tragic event. And it, it is very impactful. And, and I know that it is very, I know it's beneficial to you, but it's also very beneficial when you share your story to others. Um, and I, I've heard you talk several times to the different recruit classes. And, and I know every time we get really good feedback from them and their family members about, about you doing that. So thank you for doing that. Oh, you're welcome. So, so tell us if, if you don't mind kind of what happened that day when you, when you learned about what happened to Brian. Okay. I had previously worked, um, the entire weekend shift. I had worked a Friday night, 7 PM to 7 AM, 12 hour shift, a Saturday night, and then was scheduled Sunday night, the same uh, hours, 7 PM to 7 AM in the morning. I got a call on Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, that they were going to put me on call for the first four hours of my shift, um, which meant that they weren't too terribly busy at the time. They would call me if they needed me to come before 11, but that I could stay home until then if they're adequate staffing. And I remember asking Brian uh, if if he cared if I went and laid down and took a nap before work because I was so exhausted. And he said that was fine. And kind of gave me a hard time about when he did come in to wake me up to get ready to leave to go to work at about 10 that I had laid on his side of the bed and made it all hot. (laughs) Um, So in the morning of that Monday, uh, September 28th, he went to work and that was his Friday. He had Tuesdays and Wednesdays off. So it was the end of his work week and also the end of my having worked three shifts in a row. Typically, I would have had our daughter Natalie that day during the day, um, just due to the way that childcare had had fallen and laid out. But my mom had asked if she could spend the night the night before at my parents' house, so that either no one had to get up early to come and get her or to come and watch her until I came home. So I didn't have any responsibilities that morning, for lack of a better word, and. I, I remember telling Brian like that I was going to, we talked every morning when I was on my way home from work and he had just gotten to work. He had been through squad. He knew where he was going to be located for the day and would kind of give me a heads up and usually was either complaining about being way out in the middle of nowhere with nothing to do and no excitement or excited because he got put on a beat that maybe had a little bit more action statistically. So I knew where he was that morning and he was excited because he was in the uh, Derby, South Wichita area, which is where he grew up. So he's very familiar with the area and it was a little bit more action packed than (laughs) areas he had been on in the past being a brand new deputy. And we had made plans for you know, starting our weekend that night when he, that afternoon when he got off, I should say. And we're both excited for that. So it was very much just a normal conversation on the phone with him, uh, telling each other that we loved each other and I was going to go to bed for the day. And, you know, we said our goodbyes and I was woken up around, probably around noon by a friend whom her husband, who was a fellow nurse as well, and had also worked the previous night with me, 
her husband had called her because he had heard that a Sedgwick County Sheriff's deputy had been shot on Rock Road. And she knew that I always was aware of at least what area of town he was working on. And she called me. She said never, never in her wildest imagination, thinking that she was going to be the one to let me know that this event had happened, but that she thought that I would be able to maybe, you know, ease her fears of telling her that I've talked to him. He's okay. And I, and I would have already known what was going on, but I didn't. So your friend that called you thinking she was just, you had already known or had already been in touch with Brian. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, so from there, what happened? Because I, I know that you know, you talk about this, how it, it took a little bit of time for you to find out what happened. It did. Unfortunately, I, I was nervous, of course, initially. And she said that she changed her, her tone and her verbiage immediately when she realized that she woke me up, not wanting to alarm me. And I remember her telling me that she asked if, he, if I talked to him and if he was okay. And when I said no, she said that she heard that a cop in Wichita had been shot um, which very generic information versus, you know, the, the previous of what she had been told by her husband, that it was a sheriff's deputy and she knew the exact location. And I was, I was concerned. I was nervous, um, as any law enforcement spouse would be, I think, you know, whenever you hear that kind of news and we had had an agreement that if anything did happen, that if he could, you know, this was, this was 11 years ago and we didn't even have a text plan on our phones at the time. So you, word didn't spread as fast as it does now over social media and instant, you know, contact with people through text messages and, and whatnot. Um, but we had had an agreement that if he was able, if something tragic did happen when he was on duty, if he was able, he would give me a call and just say, I'm okay. Can't talk. Call you later, you know, or just I'm okay and hang up. So there was a part of me that was concerned that he hadn't done that and he wasn't answering his phone when I called him. But in the back of my mind, I kept thinking, you know, maybe he's maybe he's there. Maybe he's on scene. Maybe he's involved somehow and he he can't um, pick up the phone to talk to me. And so that kind of gave me a little bit of of hope that that that's the reason that I couldn't get a hold of him. So after you, you speak with your friend, um, I'm assuming you guys hang up. And then what happens next about how much time goes by between that initial phone call and then you learning that Brian was the, the one that was shot? You know, not long at all. I, I had received another phone call from a friend who was a Wichita police officer at the time, and she had been in Brian's academy class. And we were close. We were close friends in terms of we hung out together in groups a lot um, on the weekends, would go out to eat, would go out in the evenings together. Um, but she wasn't one that that would call me very often. Um like I said, I didn't even text back then. And so when she was calling me, I, and I realized it was her, I was concerned again. Um, she had worked the night before, I believe, and had also been woken up. Um, she did know that he was the one that was involved in the shooting. But again, when she realized that I didn't have any information, and I think she was of the same thought process as my friend, that they were calling me, expecting me to give them you know, this reassuring news that, hey, I, you know, I, it was him. I'm here at the hospital with him. He's okay. Just because the, the basic information that we all had was so, so just preliminary. 
at that time. And she did. She um, she knew that she alarmed me and that I was worried. And I'm sure that I asked her, you know, if it was him, if she had any information. I don't remember the exact conversation that we had, but I do remember her telling me that I needed to call the sheriff's department. And I got off the phone with her and I went into the kitchen and I stood there and I stared at the bridge like like that's where you go for <laughs> emergency numbers or something. I don't know. Maybe that's something from my childhood. And I remember thinking, I don't even know the number to the squad room. And honestly, at that point, it wouldn't have mattered because there was nobody in the squad room. But I didn't have phone numbers for anybody that he worked with directly. I didn't have phone numbers for his supervisors. I didn't have phone numbers for any of his coworkers because he had gone to first shift as a brand new deputy. And so him being the only one, I believe from his academy class, it wasn't, he wasn't working daily with the people that I had gotten to know when he was in the academy. And so I had ways to reach out to those people, but they were obviously in the same boat that I was um, with very minimal information. And I didn't have any way to contact anybody that would have been with him at the time or working with him that day to to let me know what was going on. So I called my friend back, the Wichita police officer, and I told her um, that I didn't know who to call and I didn't have a way to get in touch with anybody. And I wanted and at that point I knew I, I knew that that it had to have been him. Um, just putting everything together in my head, even though I had just been woken up and I was tired and disoriented. And she did tell me that he was involved in a shooting and that he was being taken to Wesley Medical Center, which was the hospital that I worked at at the time. And she said, there's officers coming to your house right now. I need you to stay there. Um, I need you to call 911 because I was asking, I was trying to get a lot more information out of her and she simply just didn't have it. She didn't, you know, she had been woken up as well um, with the information that he had been shot. And I, at that time in my head, I was convinced that, that he had already died and that no one wanted to tell me over the phone. And I was upset that I couldn't find out any more information about what had happened. I did call 911. I remember sitting in the floor of our kitchen and thinking to myself, Sarah, you need to speak slowly and calmly because they're not going to be able to understand you if you don't. And I told them my name and that my husband was a sheriff's deputy. I couldn't get a hold of him and that I had been informed that he had been involved in a shooting. And I remember the dispatch. I remember brief things about that conversation with the dispatcher. I remember her asking me to stay on the phone. I remember her letting me know that he was being taken to Wesley again and that um, officers were coming to the house. I I am certain that she tried to remain on the phone with me, but I, I didn't. I don't remember exactly why I ended the phone call with her. Um, but for whatever reason, uh, I hung up the phone and several times, several times I got my car keys, went to the garage and stood there with the door open, looking at my car, thinking, where are they? <laughs> I could be there by now. Um, I knew, you know, I, I knew the way that I drove to Wesley. I knew it took me about 15 minutes from our house. And in this, in this duration of time, I had also, um, I had gotten dressed I had brushed my teeth. I had let our dogs out to go to the bathroom. 
paced around. I had called my best friend whom I had worked with the night before that was a nurse um, and told her what was happening. I had talked to Brian's mother who had called me on the phone, um, distraught and worried to death, you know, hysterical. And I had to give her the information that yes, it was him, but that was all that I knew. Um, it, that was awful. And even still, you know, there was, there still wasn't anybody that had come to get me. And that, that time span lasted about from the time I got the first phone call from my friend, it was about 45 minutes before some uh, Wichita PD officer finally showed up at our door. So in that 45 minutes, you obviously had plenty of time to do all of those things. And um, I mean, I can't even imagine what was going through your head at that at that time, because that is quite a bit of time to go by. It is. It is. And it's all such a blur, you know, when I think back to that actual moment in time, that hour of time. But there's the few things that I do remember. And I do remember thinking, what is taking so long? You know, I could have I could have been there by now. Um and it ended up being that uh, the records department did not have accurate uh, information on file for Brian's address. We lived on a circle on a street, um, on a circle cul-de-sac. And the street that we lived on is a popular name of a street here in South Wichita. And there's a street, there's a, I believe there's a circle, there's a court, there, there's several different, and all they had was just the name of the street. So they were frantically trying to get to me. It was of no fault of of anyone that was trying to locate me. They just couldn't, they simply couldn't find our house because they didn't have a detailed enough description of our address in the files. And that's something, you know, that had it been double checked by by Brian or by somebody else later, maybe would have made a difference. Yeah. And I know you talk about that when you kind of cover lessons learned, um, because it is very common in our community to have a street name, but that street name have a court, a circle, um, you know, multiple different, you know, things associated with it. So to, to make sure that everybody has the proper contact information and address phone number um, is, is definitely something that we now encourage everyone to make sure that they do when they move or if they change phone numbers, because as you mentioned, it's, it's critical in a case. Absolutely. And there's no way of knowing, you know, if, if Brian, his handwriting was like chicken scratches, if it was illegible on the form that he filled out for them initially, if it was, you know, human error that was put into the computer wrong, it, it doesn't matter. Um, Bottom line is that I didn't have the resources that I needed at the time, too, because if I would have been able to get on the phone and call his supervisor, I'm certain they would have gotten to me much quicker because they would have asked, where are you? (laughs) You know, can you uh, I know at one point in time they got information that I was a nurse and working at Wesley and somebody thought that I was there at work. So it's possible that, you know, they were looking for me there at the hospital, um, not realizing that I work night shift and not day shift. So. Right. So at some point you, you say a, an officer does show up and they drive you to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so when you get to the hospital, what, what happens next? I remember arriving at the hospital, um, with a deputy, an officer picked me up, had put me in her car. And then we located a deputy at the beginning, at the entrance to our subdivision. I got in the car with him. And I do remember that being the first 
you know, sense of any kind of relief that I had because I recognized his name. I didn't know him. I'd never met him before, but I recognized the name that Brian worked with him. And I felt at least like, you know, the wheels were turning. Something was moving in the right direction to get me to him or to find out what was going on. And I arrived at the hospital um, at the ER entrance at Wesley, went in the sliding doors. I think I probably left my purse and the car door open and just ran right in. But I do remember seeing the first two people that I saw were, um, was a Sedgwick County Sheriff's deputy who had been a um, classmate of Brian's in the academy. So someone that I knew fairly well and um, a police officer at the time um, they were dating that had also been in the academy. Um, So at least two familiar faces was wonderful to see. And I also remember realizing that he had a radio. And when I saw him, I remember he told me like, oh, Sarah, you just missed him. Like they just took him to surgery. And that was devastating, to be honest. Mm -hmm. While being the medical professional that I am, I, I was glad that, you know, he was expedited into surgery that quickly, but I was really heartbroken that I didn't get to see him. I had been told that he was awake. He was alert. He was able to give them information um, about what had happened on scene. And I was just really hopeful that when I arrived at the hospital that I would have been able to see him, tell him I love him. Um, And so it was, it, it was pretty devastating to know that he had, had just been taken into surgery. And I remember at that time then thinking you know, what, what happened? Because I hadn't really been given any information about, about the incident, like what kind of call was this, those types of things. And he was able to, to at least fill me in on some of that information while they took us up to um, a waiting room in the surgery wing. Okay. So you, when you get to the hospital, you're able to, to hang out with somebody, you know, which is, which has got to be comforting find out a little bit about what happened to Brian. How long after you get there? I mean, about how much time goes by before that and um, you learn about what happened? Um, you mean specifically the call or? Oh, I'm sorry that I probably didn't ask that very good. So you get to the hospital, you learn about what happened on the call. And then when Brian comes out of surgery at some point, I think you talk to the doctor or the Okay. The, the, surg- the surgical team and you, you learn about Brian's injuries and, and go yes. from there. we were taken to a waiting room um, with immediate family. And I remember, you know, being comforted that everyone was there so quickly. Um, my parents arrived fairly quickly. Brian's mom uh, and dad arrived very quickly. His sister, uh, several of my friends that I was very close with that I had worked with um, the night before and other coworkers of his, um, friends from the Academy. And it was, it was extremely comforting to be surrounded by those people in such a fearful time. And, you know, it was several hours, probably three, um, by the time that I arrived at the hospital, um, to the surgeons coming in. And the first update that they gave us was, was promising. You know, I remember talking to my friend that was a nurse and, 
looking for reassurance in her saying that, you know, he's, he's going to be okay. Right. Like he was, he was alert. He was talking, he was, you know, he was um, aware. And she was like, yeah, he's going to be fine. Like he's in good hands. He's with the best trauma surgeons. He's, he's going to be okay. And at that point I had learned that he had been shot um, with a rifle and that it had penetrated the vest um, that he had been shot in the back and that he had also been shot with his own weapon after a struggle um, in his right foot, where he had probably had his right foot up in like a defensive mode. Um, and that the the person that did this was still at large with his weapon, um, which was very, very concerning to me. Um, and probably... I don't know, maybe 30 minutes after we got the first update that the surgery was, you know, going, going well. Um, one of the head trauma surgeons came in and I, I will never forget. He told me, and I think he was trying to prepare me knowing that I had the knowledge of surgery and, um, lab values. And I remember him saying that I needed to pray for him because there was a very good chance that he was going to die, that they couldn't keep his blood pressure up, they couldn't keep his temperature up, and they couldn't stop the bleeding. And at that point, it was definitely life-changing turning. That I that was a huge turning point where I knew like how the severity of the situation, how severe his injuries were, and that things weren't going well. Um, and he told us that he would be able to move us out to the, the waiting like hallway outside of surgery to wait. And it was myself, my parents, our priest, um, Brian's parents and his sister and one fellow deputy that was one of his very closest friends. And he told us, which I was very grateful for, the surgeon told us, um, you'll be able to wait here in the hallway so that you might be able to see him when we move him from surgery to the ICU. We're not going to stop, but you would at least be able to see the bed wheel by, you know, if we can get him stable enough to move him to SICU. And we waited in that hallway for quite a bit of time as well. Um, and Brian passed at 420 and it was sometime, you know, between then and, and probably 445, five o'clock that the surgeon came out and told us that um, they did everything that they could, but that he had died. And that I would be able to see him in a little bit. And, um, you know, I, I, it's hard to remember exactly what went through my head at that time. But I do remember that one of my very first thoughts was Natalie, was our two-year-old. And, you know, how am I going to, what am I going to say to her? Um, how am I, I couldn't even explain this to myself in my own head. Um, and I was just very, very, very much in shock. Yeah, I bet. Uh, what a, what a roller coaster! Because initially, you're you get there and you're told, you know, he's going to be okay. You're getting encouraging messages from friends mm -hmm. and who are in the medical profession, and then to kind of get that um, complete other end of the spectrum, and then obviously to learn of Brian's passing. I, I can't even imagine the roller coaster of emotions and shock, disbelief. Um, so. So you, do you get an opportunity to, to see Brian before you leave the hospital? I did. Um, they, you know, he, 
because of the type of case that it was, they weren't able to, he basically had to stay just like he was, um, which was very difficult with all tubes and IVs and everything intact. Um, but they moved him to an SICU room. And typically speaking, there would have been a uh, deputy by his side continuously, you know, 24 seven, which I think is just absolutely wonderful. And they did let me have a moment alone with him. The deputy stepped outside of the room. I remember even thinking in my head at that time, like, this isn't real. This doesn't really even look like you. Like, this is all a dream or this is all just some bad joke and I'm going to wake up. Um, because he looked, he was pale. He was swollen. He was yellow. He, you know, and I could tell that he had been involved in an altercation. And I was sitting in the SICU room with him when the deputy that had driven me to the hospital came in and told me that they they got him is what he said. We got him, Sarah, referring to the individual that had shot Brian. And I remember asking, like, are you sure? And he's like, yes, we got him. Because up until that point, you know, that I had been able to kind of process the fact that this was a this was an ambush. This was an intentional call um, to ambush police. And it was very concerning that they didn't they didn't know where he was. They couldn't find him. Um, and that was all that was all its own roller coaster of emotions, I feel like. And so I, I did I did find out that he had been um, apprehended by uh, ATF officers and um, a state trooper, I think, and shot and that he ultimately. Um, died on the scene. Um, and they did, they did end up bringing him to the same hospital that we were at. Yeah. And I know that you, you mentioned when you, when you, you talk about this incident, um, that it was very important to you in the, in the days that followed and the weeks that followed to learn more about what happened. You wanted to know the details. You wanted to know everything that happened. And I, uh, I think you even wanted to hear radio traffic how, how was that important to you and how did that help you in, in your journey to heal from all of this? You know, for me, that was absolutely paramount. I wanted to hear his radio traffic. I wanted to hear his call to dispatch that he was in trouble. I wanted to hear his voice. And as hard as it was to hear, um, I think it provided maybe a tiny bit of closure for me because it wasn't, it was awful and I could hear the sheer, you know, terror in his voice, but hearing it wasn't as bad as what I had imagined in my head. Um, it sounded like him and he sounded strong and I could tell he was scared, but he, he was in charge of what he could be in that situation. And it made me proud to know that he was able to give, you know, the oncoming deputies onto the scene information to keep them safe. Um, and that, that to me, getting a big picture of the whole day, the whole situation was something that I needed for, for my own healing. And I know that that's probably not the case for a lot of other people, but um, I did better with the more information that I got. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right. Brian absolutely was a hero, is a hero, um, and that he probably did save many other lives that day. Absolutely. I believe that 100%. 
So transitioning a little bit. So the days that follow, um, I'm sure part of that is, is a blur, but uh, after the, the funeral, after talking to your daughter about what happened, um, just if you don't mind sharing a little bit about what that was like, um, how are you able to get through those days, support systems, and and maybe other resources that you leaned on? Sure. That week absolutely was a blur. You know, I have I have memories of the week, you know, leading up to the funeral, um, the funeral obvious, obviously itself, and immediately after. We decided, or I decided, that Natalie and I would stay with my parents, and um, we didn't go back to our house very often because it was very evident in the beginning that she would continue to ask, "When is he coming home?" Um, even though she had, you know, we had talked with her, and she knew as well as any two-year-old can know what had happened. Um, when we did go back to our house, even to just pack some things up to take them back to grandma and grandpa's, she would look for him. And that was heartbreaking to me. I didn't want to be in that house without him. I felt like everywhere I turned and looked, you know, I could, I would stand in the kitchen. I would look and could remember him replacing the kitchen faucet just, you know, weeks before. And it wasn't, it wasn't a place at that time for the two of us that was, a comforting, normal, you know, home environment. It was just, it was almost more traumatic to be there with her because she really didn't understand what was going on and the permanency of any of this. So we ended up staying with my parents for about six weeks, which was wonderful because I just had, you know, unending support from them and from extended family and friends and the sheriff's department, the outpouring of love and generosity for our family was unbelievable. Um, and I, I really, you know, I had such, such great coworkers that took it upon themselves to donate me time off so that I was able to stay home with her longer, which was wonderful because we both were able to get into counseling immediately. And, um, that, that was essential. I am a huge proponent of, um, talk therapy. And I feel like if, if someone, you know, will be willing to share their feelings that that is the way you should go because, and I'm, I'm a very open person. I'm a very transparent person. I don't really have anything to hide. I do better talking about my feelings, getting them out of my head. And therapy was definitely a huge turning point for me in processing what had just happened. Um, it was very surreal, you know. I mean, as a law enforcement spouse, you know, you know the danger, you know the the odds of it happening, but you really truly believe it will never happen to me. And um, just coming to the realization that he was gone was very difficult. You know, there was still several times I'd just pick up my phone to call him, and it was it was months before I would say we had any type of normalcy, if you even want to call it that, you know, it was just everything had changed every facet of our life, every, um, every nook and cranny of everything had changed, but we, we, you know, decided what we needed to do to make it work for Natalie and I, and we tried to move forward the best that we could. I ended up trying to go back to work at the hospital and it was, far too difficult for me. Uh, it was just such a trigger being there um, on the same floor where 
the surgery floor was and labor and delivery was close. You know, I was, I was not far from where he died and it was, it was traumatic. And the schedule of a labor and delivery nurse wasn't conducive to um, a single mother with a young child. And so I got a job at an office working a nine to five job, an eight to five job as a nurse at a local uh, OBGYN clinic, which was wonderful as well um, for our family and for the situation. But again, you know, I really felt that that something had been taken from me too, that we had to change so many aspects of our, and, and from Natalie, obviously. I mean, we had been robbed of of our husband and her and father, but also of, you know, ev- like I said, everything changed. And for me, it was just extremely important to, to continue to talk about that. Yeah. And one thing that we know, regardless of what type of traumatic event or grief, um, is that talking does help. Um, there's evidence to show that it's helpful. Um, and to, whether you do that with a therapist or a peer, um, but I'm really glad that you talk about that because sometimes there's a stigma attached um, with reaching out for help and seeking therapy. And I'm glad you openly discuss that because I think somebody else hearing that, uh, regardless of what situation they're in, that could really be beneficial to know that that it was so helpful for you. Right. And that's what I've told other people, even people that have been very against the idea of therapy is that, you know, just try it. It won't hurt. It can't hurt anything. And, you know, a lot of times people find that it is extremely helpful, even if they're very skeptical of it in the beginning. You're not, well, you have nothing to lose. Exactly. And and what I always like to tell people is that um, sometimes finding the right therapist is like dating. You may have to, to try one or two before you get to the right one, but, but not to give up if for some reason it doesn't seem like a good fit initially. Yes. yes. So, so you're seeing therapy or you're seeking therapy, um, you're staying with your family, um, you know, you're, um, I don't want to say moving on, but you're attempting to move on, move forward in life. And then at some point you meet your, your now husband, who's also a law enforcement officer. Can you, you tell us how that, how that all happened? Sure. Um, you know, I am a firm believer of God putting people in your path and in your life when you need them. Um, sometimes I think we have to we have to look for those signs from Him because they can be subtle, but they're there. And I absolutely wasn't wasn't looking for for anybody like you you mentioned dating. You know, I remember just briefly even thinking like, oh, well, what, how do you even like how do you even date now? Because I really had never never gone through that avenue as an adult. You know, we met so young and we're together for, for five years before we got married. And that just seemed like a huge, another scary, you know, hurdle of roller coaster of emotions that I didn't even want to think about at that time. Understandable. Yeah. Right. No interest. And, uh, we had gone out to dinner with some friends and, uh, in the same group of other law enforcement officers that had been in the academy with um, with Brian. And I ended up chatting and meeting Derek. Uh, It wasn't the first time that we had met per se, but we kind of, you know, would hang out in the same circles as people. So I knew of him, I knew who he was and I knew about his story. Obviously, um, he was shot July 11th, 2008, um, in the femoral artery on duty. And, you know, 
medically speaking, it it's absolutely a miracle that he survived. Um, so I, I had very much, very little knowledge about, about him, about his story, but I did know the basics of what had happened because Brian had literally started the Academy that week that Derek got shot. And so I remember the event happening and Derek is also someone that is, you know, extremely, um, transparent and uh, outgoing as far as like he'll, he'll give you the shirt off his back and he'll do anything he can to help you. And he was helpful to talk to because he was someone else that had gone through a similar traumatic event, you know, and it, and although you may not see the similarities because he, he didn't lose someone that he loved. Um, but he went through something that was absolutely life-changing. And I truly believe that you, you know, when faced with a situation like that, it will either pull you closer to God and increase your faith or unfortunately, you know, sometimes turn you the other direction. And I felt, I felt the nudge of God working through him to bring me peace about, you know, the situation. And like you mentioned, you know, moving on, moving forward for a long time, I hated those terms because I felt like everybody else gets to move on. You know, I remember it being months later and driving somewhere and you'd see people laughing in their cars and you're like, do you, you know, you're sitting next to them at a stoplight and you're thinking, do you not know what just happened to me? You know, and everybody else does kind of, you know, later they do, they go on with their lives and you, you have to move forward, but you can't go on with what was there before because it's gone. And every dream and every hope and every plan that you had is, is shattered and has to change. And I was just bound and determined that I was going to make the best life that I possibly could for Natalie and that we weren't going to live, live within our grief. Um, we were going to honor him and we were always going to remember him and we were going to talk about him, but we were going to live our lives in a way that would honor him and, you know, be grateful that, that we have each other and that we had the ability to, to move forward in life when he didn't. And, and you have, cause obviously now you've got um, besides Natalie, you've got three more kids yes. um, since, <laughs> since marrying Derek and, um, you know, you, you've got a, a full life family, um, and you've really demonstrated what I, what I call just the epitome of resilience. And I know it wasn't an easy road and you talk about some of those struggles, um, and how that impacted you and your family. Absolutely. No, it, it was most definitely not easy. And that's the thing about grief is that it really will come in waves and it will come and just knock you over in the middle of nowhere when you're not expecting it. Um, I walk past somebody in the grocery store that's wearing his cologne and I smell it and that takes me back immediately. You know, I hear a song on the radio and Natalie says or does something that is exactly like her dad. And it's, it is hard. It is still hard 11 years later. Um, but you know, I found that you can, you can, you can live in the past, um, in grief or you can live in, 
in the future in anxiety and worry about what else may happen in your future, or you can live in the present. And it's extremely hard to do, and it takes practice, and it takes mindfulness and um, concentration, but that's where God is, and that's where he wants us to be. And this is the only moment that we've got. You know, it's the only moment that we're promised. We can't change the past, and there's nothing we can do to control the future. So taking taking in the moment that we're given and being grateful for that is where happiness is found, I believe. And, you know, it's like people ask, well, how long did it take you to get serious with Derek? And, you know, it, for a while it was, it was difficult because it seemed like it was very quick. And I guess the more I think back on it, it's like, when you know, you know, and I just knew, I knew that God placed him in my life. And I truly believe that, that Brian had a hand in that. Um, and it's it's beautiful to to be able to carry on his legacy and his memory with Natalie and also with my children that I've had with Derek too. I mean, our whole family knows about him. There's pictures of him in our house. He's talked about very frequently. Um, and that that to me is is just wonderful. Yeah. Now you you uh seem to do a very good job of balancing what you just said is not living too much in the past, not worrying about the future, being mindful, being living in the now, so to speak, mm -hmm. but also keeping Brian's memory alive. And so that not only Natalie, but her siblings and, and the rest of your family and our community um, keep Brian in our minds and in our hearts. So you talk a little bit too about um, some of the struggles you personally had, and if you don't mind just touching upon that, because you're you're pretty passionate and outspoken about wanting to make sure that um, other spouses, in particular, um, reach out for help if they're struggling. So if you don't mind talking a little bit about that, absolutely. Um, I like I said, Wendy, I am you know just trying to in my journey to be transparent and to be open and to to let other people know that, you know, if they happen to be struggling with something that they're not alone. Um, and I, you know, and when I talk about living in the moment, that is something that I still have to practice, practice daily, um, sometimes hour by hour, sometimes minute by minute. It wasn't always this way. Um, over the past, you know, 10, 11 years, I dealt with a lot of anxiety and I was an anxious person before Brian was killed. And so that didn't, you know, definitely didn't help the situation. Um, obviously dealt with some depression, dealt with um, numerous postpartum depression after each of my subsequent kids were born and eventually um, dealt and, and, and I'm still dealing with alcoholism. You know, I, I got to a point where I was so I was so upset about the past and so angry and felt cheated and I think you know when you when you look at the root of anger you're you're going to find fear and you're going to find hurt and that's exactly where I was I was hurt by what had happened and everybody told me you know like oh you're so strong you're so strong and while that was wonderful to hear I felt like inside I'm not and you have no idea but then I felt like I had to live up to this strong you know appearance and this strong personality and I couldn't be weak and I couldn't be vulnerable and that was mostly probably in my head and of my doing, but it was, it was 
it was very difficult. It was hard times. And I was, you know, being married to a law enforcement officer that was killed in the line of duty and then being married to a law enforcement officer that was currently working, you know, on duty. Um, a lot of anxiety and fear went along with that. And I turned to alcohol slowly, you know, I mean, in the beginning, that w- it was a social thing. It was absolutely, it was, it was centered around fun and people and community. Um, we were young. That's how we spent our time, you know, celebrating with friends when, when Brian was alive, other people in the Academy, we would go out, and, you know, have dinner and drinks. Um, and of course, in my life with Derek, you know, alcohol was surrounded around a lot of beautiful things, our wedding, baptisms of our kids, parties, birthday parties, celebrations of the anniversaries of, you know, his shooting. Um, but there's a time when if you, if you suffer from alcoholism, when it turns to, you know, using it in an unhealthy way to cope. And that is most definitely what I did. And when I look back, I definitely had, um, I never stopped seeing a therapist, but my attendance and seeing a therapist declined during those times. And I kind of had this, this feeling of, you know, this, I don't know, mentality that that America holds of like, you know, just pull your bootstraps up and you can take care of this yourself. Um, and kind of just get up, move on, deal with it. And I wasn't, I wasn't getting the help that I needed regularly, um, from therapy, from, um, for my anxiety, a lot of things had changed in my life as far as I had, you know, stopped working to stay home with our children and lost that community of, you know, just having coworkers and friends that I could talk to outside of the home on a regular basis. And I turned to wine that would numb the feeling. I mean, that's just basically it. That's the root of it, you know, and it turned into, drinking wine every night after I put my kids to bed and telling myself in my head that I didn't have a problem, that this was normal mom stuff. You know, this was normal mom culture. Um, Everybody did it. And unfortunately, I, you know, it, it only increased from there. And I tell people this now that, you know, every alcoholic starts out as a functioning alcoholic until they're not. It's not a matter of, if it's when, and eventually, you know, the nightly drinking after I put my kids to bed, um, wasn't, and I'm worried about Derek because he was working undercover at the time and working night shift. And I was home alone with, with four kids and, um, you know, bedtime and dinner routine and homework and all that stuff fell on my shoulders. And it was stressful. It was very stressful. And I normalized drinking to deal with that stress. And eventually it became a physical dependence where I, you know, the, the two glasses of wine that were not even really two glasses because they were probably poured in a big cup, um, weren't cutting it. And I would drink vodka in, in secret. And that was when I knew that, you know, deep down, this isn't normal. This isn't a normal way to cope. There's, there's something wrong that you're not addressing, um, because you've become physically dependent on a substance to maintain your feelings to go through life. And I definitely was. I I didn't want to feel the feelings. 
I didn't want to be upset. I didn't want to feel weak. I didn't want to feel, you know, not strong. I didn't want to feel fear, anxiety. And I, I unfortunately turned to something that would take those feelings away momentarily, you know, for a short period of time, but ultimately just made it worse. You know, if, if you have anxiety, alcohol is, is very much like pouring gasoline on a fire. And ultimately it took over my life and was affecting my husband and my children and all my friends, family, you know, everyone around me, because that's the thing about alcoholism is it's such a, um, such a community disease. It's not, you know, and unfortunately, usually the person only thinks they're hurting themselves and that's so not the case. And I really, you know, in the beginning, I really, really struggled with uh, accepting alcoholism as a disease. I thought that this was just purely choice-based and I was very um, at odds with myself, very conflicted with myself because I knew what I was doing was wrong, yet I kept continuing to do it. I tried to stop on my own, but I physically couldn't. And it was such a, a paradox of knowing that there was something wrong and I was continuing to make the wrong decisions to deal with it, but not being able to speak up and get the help that I needed and the support that I needed from others to deal with the situation. Yeah. And a lot of things that you say are very common. Um, like one of the things you said about pull your bootstraps up. Well, it's pretty common in our, in law enforcement, but also obviously for spouses as well to just to suck it up. This is what you signed up for, but, but it's not obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm glad to hear you say that because I think a lot of people need to know that you know, this is tough. What you went through is not something um, that most people were, will ever experience and that whatever reaction you have um, is is normal for you. And that the, the ability to recognize that, um, it, it's difficult because you talked about it. You're like, you know, in your, your, your logical mind, you're a nurse, you're an educated person. You knew you could see what was happening, but yet you couldn't control it. You couldn't control your actions. So, what was your rock bottom? Like what made you finally know I need to get help? You know, I, it's hard to discern between two different events in my life. I, um, and, and I do try to be very open about this. It's in the beginning, it was hard because it was embarrassing. And I'm ashamed to say that I, I did want to hide it. I, I didn't want to accept the reality of, of life on life's terms and, the way things were because it didn't fit this picture perfect Facebook, Instagram, you know, image of my life. And I wanted to live up to this strong, you know, I can, I can get through anything. I can get through your worst nightmare type of mentality. And, um, I had realized that, you know, I'd known for a while that for probably a couple months that, um, the drinking was way too often and, um, the, like, um, consuming of alcohol was too much in quantity, but, you know, I still, I was able to still get up and get my kids to school. I, you know, I was still able to do all of the functioning daily things at the very basic level. And of course, you know, people like my husband and my closest friends could see that, that it wasn't, I wasn't myself and I was doing the bare minimum, but I was still able to function per se. Um, and I, it was a Saturday morning and it was the, um, 
let's see, it would have been the last day of August in 2019. And I had been drinking the night before and had drank uh, way too much the night before and woke up and again in the morning and remembered thinking like, I need, like I was shaky and I need more to drink because that's the only thing that's going to make this feeling go away. And up until then, you know, I really hadn't been a day drinker or a morning drinker. And I, I, you know, foolishly told myself that, that I was okay, that I was just a normal mom because our society normalizes this mommy wine culture so often. And we were also, uh, you know, in the midst of just stressful times in our life. It's, I've got four young kids, um, a husband that works a dangerous job with crappy hours. And I kept making excuses to tell myself, like, this is what anybody else would do in this situation. And I looked at myself in the mirror and I honestly did not recognize the person that I saw. And I told my husband that I needed help and that I had tried to stop drinking on my own and I couldn't um, because he had asked me several times, you know, to cut back or to just, you know, just the plain and simple of mindset of a normie, as we call them, of just don't do it. Just don't drink it. Don't buy it. Don't put it in your mouth. You know, it's that easy. And um, the truth is it's not. And I, you know, the more that I've learned about alcoholism and alcoholism as a disease is that it's, it's twofold. It is choice-based. Um, but you know, in the beginning it does change alcohol is considered a disease by the American medical association. And they're a heck of a lot smarter than I am. Um, it has an ICD code, you know, it has treatment available for it because it's considered as, as a disease and your actual, you know, physical brain is altered because of the extended exposure to alcohol over and over and over again. And the neural pathways are changed. And that's what leads to the addictive behavior that's so primal um, of just that, you know, kind of the need of, of, of air and the need of food. And it becomes kind of on that basic, like you have to maintain a level of homeostasis in your body and your brain. Your brain needs that alcohol if you are consistently abusing it. And it, you know, you might not even think of it as being abuse um, in terms of how we think of alcoholics living under a bridge, you know, homeless with nothing. Um, but that's not the case. It It can happen quickly. It can happen easily. And it can happen you know, to, to anyone, it does not discriminate. And it's not even that you have to have that, that much that often, you know, it, it's different for everyone. Um, and I was a daily drinker and, um, my body definitely became physically dependent upon alcohol. And I knew in my heart, um, back to that morning in August that I needed help. I knew the effects of alcoholism on a family, on a child, um, myself personally, and I wanted to make a change. I knew that I could not do it on my own because I tried. And I told him that I needed to detox and I needed uh, treatment to do that because uh, at least, you know, I, I know a few things medically and alcohol and benzodiazepines are by far the most dangerous substances to 
cold turkey detox from. Um, it can't, it can be fatal. And there are circumstances where it is when people try to do it on their own and you just never know how bad the symptoms are, how bad the physical effects are going to be. Um, some people have, are really, really easily able to cut it out of their life and their system. Others, not so much. So I did, I went to a treatment facility to detox, which was, um, one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. It was extremely hard to leave my children and leave my husband. Um, but again, I knew I knew what God wanted of me and he wanted the best version of Sarah and the best wife and the best mother. And I couldn't do that if I was drinking. And I needed to go somewhere where I could focus on getting myself better and um, learn the skills and the tools like I said, that are, that get me through every day of living in the moment. And sadly to say that I, I didn't even fully accept it then, you know, even after treatment, I, I joined a 12 step program, but I didn't really, I just kind of went through the motions and not being because I thought that I was above anybody or better than anybody else, but I didn't, I didn't fully accept the um, the permanency of, I knew that I needed to stop drinking right now, but I couldn't wrap my head around forever. I couldn't wrap my head around never being able to have a glass of wine again. And, you know, maybe someday going on a cruise and, you know, just, just the back to the fun times of when alcohol was a part of my life, that it was celebratory and it was happy and it was good. And so I started to think that I could, you know, now after I got sober, like, which is the wish of every alcoholic, that now you can learn to drink again like a normal person. <laughs> and I think it's one of those things that my stubborn self had to learn the hard way. I, I tried, I tried to moderate it again after treatment and it did not work. It did not take very long at all to where I realized, okay, I cannot consume alcohol. I cannot consume it even a little bit, none. It has to be complete abstinence for me because the type of person that I want to be, I can't do unless I am fully present, 100% sober, 100% living in the moment in my right mind. And that's truly what I want, you know? And it, it did, it took a while. I didn't want to accept, I, I tell people this too. It's like, when I've had the most struggles, it's because I didn't want to accept the reality of the situation. When I struggled the most after Brian died, it's because I didn't want to accept the fact that he was gone. I didn't want to accept the fact that I was a 26-year-old widow on my own, a single mother um, that had to change jobs and, you know, all of her plans had been ruined for her life. But I wanted control of the situation. I didn't want to accept it as it was. And that led me to trying to deal with the situation on my own and numb the bad feelings. And again, the same thing with realizing that I am an alcoholic. I I didn't want to, I didn't want the label. I, I didn't want the social stigma that comes along with it, sadly. I didn't want to accept the fact that not only am I, am I an alcoholic now, but I am an alcoholic forever and this will never go away. Um, that was difficult. And it was um, about 11 months ago that I finally just, I, I, I don't know, a divine intervention, I guess, that I had tried to moderate drinking and I just thought, you know what, you tried it, you tried to do all the things that they told you not to do <laughs> because they told you what would happen and they happened and here you are, you know, and I decided to 
100% throw myself into a 12-step program. And that's the beauty of openness is because I felt a connection because of a friend who was an acquaintance, not a close friend. Um, she was somebody that I respected. She was somebody that I respected in my community, somebody that I respected in my church um, as, as her profession. She's a professional and she shared publicly that she struggled with alcoholism and that she was in recovery. And that made me feel like I wasn't alone. You know, that was the, oh, okay, me too moment for me. And I felt like if she can do it, I can do it. And she knows how I feel. She's walked this road. She's dealt with these same, you know, trials and these same difficulties that I'm facing that unless you're unless you've suffered from addiction, you, you truly cannot understand. Um, because I've been on the other side of that as well, you know, and, and it was, it was her honesty and her openness and her transparency that I reached out to her and said, okay, I want what you've got. <laughs> Tell me how to do it. And I'm going to listen to everything you say, and I'm going to give a hundred percent. And that has what has brought me the absolute most joy in my life is just accepting who I am. You know, I'm, I'm Sarah and yes, I'm, I'm a widow and yes, I'm a law enforcement spouse currently. And yes, I'm a mother of four and I'm a nurse and yes, I'm an alcoholic and I'm a mother of a child that has a chronic, um, autoimmune disease for which there is no cure. But all of those things are just pieces of who I am. Not, not one singular thing identifies me or defines me, but they all make up who I am. And they all make up for my journey. And I think if you don't acknowledge the difficulties, then you're really doing yourself a disservice and also others because you're you're not being real. You're not being honest and you're not um, everybody struggles, everybody, you know, whether it be with addiction or not, everybody has their struggles. And if you try to portray the fact that you can get through life without struggles, you're going to be sorely disappointed. And you're if, if you think that you can get through life without suffering, you're going to suffer more than you need to, unfortunately. Wow, Sarah, thank you. You, you say so many things that um, are so important for people to hear. And I really appreciate the fact that you're willing to share your story because, you know, you mentioned it with the person that inspired you to finally get help. You just really don't ever know the impact or the ripple effect that you're going to have on someone who's either even listening to this podcast or just that you come into contact because you have um, this amazing way of you just have a light. Um, when, pe when you talk, um, people want to listen to what you have to say, and that's not always the case. And so that's one of the reasons I started this podcast is I think it's so important for people to share their struggles, their stories, to be transparent, like you say. Because I think the number one issue that we have with law enforcement and now even, you know, with law enforcement spouses is the shame uh, attached to, um, and we'll just talk about alcoholism because this is an issue in our line of work. And obviously, you know, now we, we know that it's an issue with spouses as well. And if we don't talk about it and people don't share their stories and it's going to continue to stay hidden. And, and I think it's very important too, that you talk about, you're so well-educated um, about this disease, because I think people have a hard time wrapping their brain around, well, it's a choice. I can stop whenever I want. I choose to drink. I can cut back, but really, you know, it's as simple as it's no different than a physical injury or having a cast on your arm. Something isn't right. Something's broken. Your brain is not operating 
um, in, in the same way that other people who aren't alcoholics are. So I, I think it's really good that you have that understanding and knowledge and that you, you accept it because that's really what it comes down to is acceptance. So thank you for, thank you for, for all of that. And, um, and congratulations on 11 months of, of sobriety too. Thank I know you. That's not Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So uh, lastly, I just kind of want to touch upon a few things. So for someone who's listening, what, um, what kind of resources do you recommend, whether it be if somebody's struggling with alcohol, uh, whether they just want to reach out and have support of other law enforcement spouses, whether they've lost um, a law enforcement officer in the line of duty, uh, maybe some of the things that you relied on and, and maybe some of the current ways that, that you get support? And then also, how can people reach out to you specifically if they want to? Uh, I think, you know, there's so many resources out there and things that have helped me specifically was the COPS organization, uh, Concerns of Police Survivors, which is a group of people that have come together because of the specific loss of a law enforcement officer in the line of duty. Um, so it is it is very specific. And I am part of you know, groups on social media that is composed of nothing but fellow widows, um, spouses, and those that are killed um, feloniously and those that are killed accidentally, you know, and it, it doesn't, there's no difference, but it's nice to have the community of people that have walked in your shoes and people that know what you're going through, know what you, how you feel and can help you point you in the right direction for, um, getting the help that you need if you do need help. Um, again, I, I strongly recommend, you know, talk therapy. Um, and yeah, like you said, he, it, it may take a while to find the right person, but it's worth it. Um, even if it's, even if it's just something you do proactively as maintenance, you know, even if you don't think that you need it right now, I think it's a good, it's never a bad thing to have someone in your corner that can be your person. That's your, you know, confidential person and your, um, you can confide in that they can help you. And also just, you know, in regards to alcoholism, I just really want people to be aware. I want people to wake up and open their eyes and realize how huge of a problem this is becoming in our society. And I'm not most definitely not turning to this, to the, the ultimate side that alcohol is, is wrong and alcohol is terrible and, you know, we should all be against it and it should go away. No, alcohol is a huge part of our, of our society and our lives. Um, but with it being a part of our social lives and something that's almost like expected, you know, there's the kind of the term in, in the recovery community that like alcohol is the only drug that you have to defend not taking. People don't understand um, why you don't, why you don't do it if you don't do it anymore. Um, and just in like, just in most recent history, I think it was a study that was done in 2017, alcohol use between 2002 and 2013 increased by 83%. And to me, oh, that's, wow. that's huge and that's scary. Um, and I, I don't have any specific data of, you know, alcohol use during the pandemic, but I can only imagine and speculate that it's even more and even more dangerous and even worse um, as far as being used as a tool to cope. 
And that's where, that's where you get in trouble. And also um, the other thing that I feel is, is very important for law enforcement to know is that um, I also found a study that said that uh, 40% of U.S. men and women with PTSD um, also met criteria for alcohol use disorder. And there is a direct correlation between trauma and alcohol abuse, 100%. And um, unfortunately, it's become an area of our society where if anything happens, huh, you need a drink, you know, and that's not true. <laughs> you don't, you don't need a drink. You need to process what has happened if you have dealt with a traumatic situation. And so many law enforcement officers are you know, faced with traumatic situations on a daily basis in their job. And that also spills over to their families and to their spouses. Um, they are not immune to think that that they come in from their shift and they leave everything at the door and there's a complete separation between work and home is ridiculous and is and simply not true. And so I would only imagine that if there's an increased risk for law enforcement officers to abuse substances that that would also fall over into their family. So there are all kinds of resources for if you need physical detox, as far as just, you know, getting help um, locally in your community. Um, 12 step programs, I believe, I honestly fully believe that everybody should practice a 12 step program, whether you are an alcoholic or addict or not. Um, it's just about self-awareness and mindfulness and, knowing yourself and reviewing yourself at the end of the day. And, you know, it's, it's wonderful life practice. I'm teaching these things to my kids. Um, and I wouldn't be where I was without it. And I, I hope to break down some of that stigma that, that comes along with, um, being part of those organizations that are anonymous, that are, you know, um, hidden, because of the negative connotation that comes along with them. Yeah, you you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I'm I'm glad you brought up the 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 trauma and alcohol link because that's something that um unfortunately I think we we struggle far too much from. Uh, I don't think we even know the impact of how many people are suffering in silence um, due to a traumatic incident that they experienced on the job most likely. Um, and that they're dealing with it in silence with alcohol. So I'm glad I'm glad you brought that up and 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 made that association. And then Absolutely. also, yeah, thank you for that. And then the the whole twelve step thing. Never been through the twelve step program, but I love that you mentioned mindfulness and self awareness. I mean, I think those are things that we need to teach our kids. From yes, self accountability and honesty. Yep. You know, I mean, those are just basic. It's it's kind of like. We, we joke about it that, you know, that a 12-step program is just really like how to be a, an accountable adult for dummies. <laughs> it's just, you know, there's, it's just good life skills. Yes. Agreed. So one last thing, um, your Instagram account, um, if you don't mind, I'll share that with everyone. If somebody wants to reach out or follow you, uh, we talked about this earlier, is sincerely underscore sober underscore Sarah, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. Good. So if, if anybody wants to reach out, that's the way to get to you, right? Yes. It's fairly new. Um, but I decided to, you know, be open and be vocal and be um transparent uh in, in a public way because I have felt called to share my story because if like you said, the ripple effect, you know, we, we have no idea. And if it someone told me that 
that helped me to get sober. She told me that if one, that if one person, you know, changed their thought process or one person got sober because of her, then it was 100% worth her being, um, open and honest and transparent about it. And that's definitely how I feel. And so there's, there's a lot of my struggles, you know, like I said, it's new, um, and I'm building on it, but it's the way that I want to show the reality of grief, the reality of living with grief, you know, for the rest of your life, the reality of living with being an alcoholic, um, just the struggles of everyday life and how, how you can deal with those in the most productive and positive way that you can, because they're going to happen, you know, where everybody's going to have hard times. And so I, I feel as though if I can share real life, you know, maybe that will help someone else to, um, seek the support that they need, whether it be, you know, as intense as treatment and a 12 step program, or just as intense or just as minimal as, um, talking to someone, you know, I mean, if any of that happens, then it's worth it to me. Great. One last question for you, and then I will, I'll let you go since we've, uh, we've been talking for quite a while. I can keep talking to you forever. If Sorry. you have, no, oh no, no, I'm you're good. <laughs> oh no, this is all, this is all good stuff. If you had one piece of advice to give, uh, and it can be more than one, but to give, um, a law enforcement officer or their wife or husband or family member, um, in starting out this career field? What, what would that be? What would you say to them? I think, um, you know, most definitely the, the best advice that I can give to just spouses, to family members is just to keep an open line of communication. That is so essential for your relationship, whether it be your marriage, your, your family relationship. Um, when, when we close doors and we close people off, that's when problems occur. And it's going to be different for every every spouse, you know, and their law enforcement officer, every marriage, every um, family situation of of how much they're going to talk about situations and how much they're going to open up about things that are that they're dealing with that they may be struggling with. You know, some people need that communication frequently and extremely open. Others need needed to be a little bit more private, and that's fine. But to keep those open lines of communication will be the difference in a successful um, uh, marriage situation or, you know, family situation and one that struggles that doesn't have to. Um, I think the more that you're open and you talk about how you're feeling, the more that you keep people close to you and you keep people feeling connected to you and, um, the better off that you'll be as a spouse. Um, and also just to really remember what is in your circle of control. You know, what what can I control? And the truth is there's very, very little that we can control. And we can control how we react to situations and we can control how we focus on situations. And I think that's been life-changing for me that I can I can either decide that there's something I can do about this situation and I can do the hard work and, you know, like I said, pull my bootstraps up and and make the difference myself with the change and something that I'm doing. Um, and those, those situations occur and they're there. And, but most often 
the things that we worry about, the things that cause us anxiety are completely out of our control. And I really would just encourage people to, if you, um, if you lean on religion, you know, that is extremely helpful. Um, your faith that, you know, it's out of your hands and worrying about the past or the future isn't going to get you anywhere and isn't going to help anything. And that is so much easier said than done. I realize, <laughs> especially it in this, in this line of work. Yeah, it it certainly is. But one of my favorite quotes is something like, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% the way that you react to it. Um, really great advice, but not always so easy to do. So it's it's kind of a daily, sometimes hourly thing that you need to constantly remind yourself. Absolutely. Well, well Sarah, thanks again for your time and your willingness to, to share your story. Uh, I appreciate it. And thank you very much. Well, thank you, Wendy. Thank you for listening. And <laughs> sorry if I if I went a little too long. Oh, you're good. It's it's been a pleasure. This has been great. Okay. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to contact Sarah, she has an Instagram account, and her handle is sincerely underscore sober underscore Sarah. Thank you. Mm-hmm.